She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. And in 30 seconds' time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Wilson Keeney. And I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we are also discussing anti- the... Anti-Love Never Dies. Yes, yes, we are also anti-Love Never Dies. Uh, but this week we are discussing the Philip K. Dick-esque uh, In Time. It's a science fiction film starring Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried. Philip K. Dick if he had a concussion. Yes, yeah. concussion yeah. Kate Dick. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into this, but... The K is for concussion. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an accurate summation of the film, really. Or, as I like to call it, Paul Ass. Yeah. Paul Ass would have been a funnier title. Before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why you start us off? Well, I just want to say right at the top here that I probably sound a little bit different. If people are listening closely, it's because I've got undergone phase two of my adventure in dentistry. Um, phase one was the most painful, but phase two is the one that has precipitated the most obvious change if you met me in the street. But uh it's also, you know, my mouth is feeling a little bit clunky and uh, will be until I complete phase three in a few weeks. So I'm probably going to sound a little bit off for the next couple of episodes, but uh, just, you know, on my S's and such. But um, I did also have the opportunity this week, in, ad- in addition to my visits to the dentist, to take a visit to uh, the cinema and see Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, it is a historical crime drama directed by Martin Scorsese, and it is based on the non-fiction book Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. It's set in 1920s Oklahoma uh, on an Osage Nation uh, Native American reserve, and uh, they discover oil, which all of a sudden makes them hugely wealthy, which ferments a bunch of white resentment um, in the local community. And uh, this coincides with an absolute moron, Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, having just returned from World War One. He is taken under the wing of his wealthy uncle, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro. And he meets and marries an Osage woman, uh, Molly Kyle, played by Lily Gladstone. And as years go by, the Osage uh, fall victim to massive amounts of murders, Uh, Molly herself starts to waste away. Uh, They think it's because of the diabetes she has. And so um, William King Hale organizes for Ernest to give her some of this newfangled insulin that he's got a lead on. Um, But obviously, it's all a conspiracy by Hale to kill these Native Americans and steal their oil money. So obviously, you will have seen, if you've been following on uh, film discourse in the last however long, um, that this is a hugely well-received film. Uh, people talking about it as you know a massive triumph and uh, one that is you know a career best for Martin Scorsese for all sorts of, of different reasons. But 
I've got to say, and this is not going to win me any friends, I think it's all a bit much ado about nothing. Um, I found this to be a, a tremendously disappointing film. Um, I don't get it. I don't get the response to it. It, for starters, does not justify its length. Not even remotely. It's three and a half hours long. It doesn't justify two and a half hours of length, um, let alone three and a half hours, maybe closer to 120 minutes flat, and you've got a story that is actually, you know, flows well, but not as it currently stands. Would it feel better with an intermission? Oh, uh, no. Because it. I know <laughs> have, you're the have joke you heard that you're those making. Stories? Yeah, yeah, that Apple and Martin Score says you're getting angry at cinemas for inserting intermissions in. I can't blame the cinemas, quite frankly, and also, you know, <laughs> oh, it affects the pacing of the movie. Well, the pacing of the movie is clearly not something that Martin Scorsese has paid much attention to, mm. given the movie he's made. But like, oh, um, how long is it in comparison to Oppenheimer? It's like a little over half an hour longer. I mean, Oppenheimer was pretty long, but it didn't suffer from it. Yeah, but stuff happened in Oppenheimer. <laughs> and stuff doesn't happen in Killers of the Flower Moon. It's the definition of indulgent. It lurches about at a snail's pace. It's hugely damaging to the story that it's telling. Um, and it's told from the wrong perspective. You see in a lot of the interviews and press surrounding the release of the movie, Scorsese and his creative partners talking about how the movie began life as a procedural, that it was going to be from the perspective of the FBI coming in to find out why all of these people were being murdered, who was doing it. And Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play the FBI investigator, who in this final version of the movie is instead played by Jesse Plemons. Um, but Martin Scorsese realized along the way that it wasn't working, that in the 21st century, they needed to actually not focus on, you know, the white people coming in to solve the crime so much. They needed to focus on actually the brutality of, of white violence against the Native American community. And so to tell it from a Native American perspective. And that's great. That's, you know, wonderful. I hear that. I'm like, cool. But my next question is, okay, Martin, what happened between making that decision and the final shooting script where you just shot a movie about the white murderers? Uh, because that's what he's done. It's told entirely from the perspective of the people who murdered these poor men and women. Um, that's that's the criticism I've heard bandied yeah. around. And it, this is coming from, you know, American First Nations folks. Yeah. And like, literally, Media literacy scholars. Well, there's something that's very... I'm not necessarily against the idea of it having that angle just as an instantly disqualifying thing. I think there's a mm. problem in that, you know, there are so few stories about the um, the Native American experience that to have this big, massive, big budget one that's so much about this really traumatic thing that happened to that community, to tell it from the perspective of the white people that did it to them, that's, mm. a, that's an issue. But on, on paper devoid of all outside context, I don't necessarily think that telling it from the perspective of the murderers is a disqualifying idea. Hmm. That said, these people are so uninteresting as, as <laughs> anti-protagonists or whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, DiCaprio and De Niro are both just excellent. They're brilliant, De Niro especially. But the characters that they're given are shallow, and the movie survives on the strength of their performances. Because if you had performers who weren't as good at holding the screen with so little script to back them up, it would be kind of a painful experience, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, look no further than the character of Ernest, who I, who I talked about an ab being an absolute moron, and he is. And this is the question that this, um, that the movie, the central question of this character that the movie has to address is, 
whether he is the devil or whether he is a cowardly idiot. Because obviously anyone intuiting from my plot synopsis would realize that the insulin shots he's giving his wife are not insulin, they're poison. Um, and so, you know, basically how how much does he know about this plot or does he know nothing at all and is being totally manipulated? Or is, he, or is it a bit of in-between? Does he know a little bit, but he's too much of an idiot to piece the whole thing together? The movie just sort of decides that he's an idiot and doesn't really question it much further. And that's completely uninteresting. It definitely misses the chances to drill, in, to drill into um, all of the themes of white opportunism, opportunism um, white violence against Native American um, people and communities, uh, but also the thornier issues of that this was a, a white man who married into a Native American community and enacted this violence on his own family. Um, all that stuff, you know, there's that should be incredibly dramatic, dramatically compelling, but it's so underutilized, and it, it's just that, like, it's just the broad shape of it. There's the detail of it, the texture of it, the stuff that would make that valuable to explore is not explored. Um, and that's why I come back to the length. It's three and a half hours, but the first two and a half is just watching an idiot and his uncle run around poisoning a Native American people. I mean, why Why do I want to watch that, you know? Hmm. I mean, it's just sort of misery porn and just lots of – like they keep cutting away to show, oh, here's this Native American we've never seen before getting shot by this white person we've never seen before. It keeps spotlighting all these episodes of violence, but without – and and it's to show us the breadth of this scheme. I understand that. It's show us show us the breadth of the evil that is being perpetrated. But the fact that that's all you're seeing for two and a half hours, that and Leonardo DiCaprio basically playing a moron. Like, it's, there's not enough there there. And the and what's there is so unpleasant and told from such a skewed perspective that it is an issue. Um, yeah. It's, this I mean, definitely sounds like a story that should have been told by Native American filmmakers. Yeah, and it should like it. Like, I can't overstate how desperately problematic the three and a half hour runtime is. Like it is mm. poison to this film. Um, the it and plus there's also choosing at this perspective. I mean, this is much more of a base sort of you know storytelling problem than it is a, a question of perspective or of of um you know how best to portray serious topics like this. But by setting it so much from the perspective of Leonardo DiCaprio, it robs the film of any suspense. There is no mystery here. We know what's happening. We know who's doing it. We know why they're doing it. And so we're just, literally, we're just watching them go around doing it. And um, every time they're confronted with the pain of this community, they go, oh, that's so terrible. Who could ever have done this? And get all shifty-eyed. and you know, where's the dramatic heft of that for two and a half hours? Um, the the dramatic heft mostly comes from Lily Gladstone, who plays um, Leonardo DiCaprio's Native American wife. Um, that's the POV. That's the person we should be with for 100% of the movie. She's being poisoned by her husband and her uncle-in-law, and all of her, you know, friends and family are being murdered. And that should be where we're coming from. This should be the person that we're following through here. Um, from watching the trailers, that's what I thought it was going to be. No. Um, it's it's the most extreme gaslighting possible. You do get some scenes where Scorsese and co. seem to realise, oh, there's, we should maybe focus in on Lily Gladstone for a moment here. 
But for so much of it, it's get like put it this way: the the number of scenes in which Lily Gladstone appears without another one of the major like white actors around her versus the number of scenes that say Leonardo DiCaprio appears without Lily Gladstone is just like it, it's so askew, right? Mm. Like you're following Leonardo DiCaprio around all the time when he's doing everything. You get a handful of scenes that's just Lily Gladstone talking to her family or her friends. From what I can, by herself. From what I can tell, is that not only is it problematic in a, as a retelling of history, that's also not the ideal perspective to tell the movie from because it's the least dramatic way to tell and it. And it's yeah, exactly. It's the most dull. From what I can tell, it's actually fairly accurate to what happened. Yeah. Like in terms of them presenting a sequence of events my understanding is that that's pretty spot on but the way that they've chosen to portray those sequence of events is dramatically inert and um as i said i'm not i I don't think that the point of view problems disqualify it automatically but you need to justify choosing that point of view you you know you need to show us why it's worthwhile if you're going to choose that point of view of following the victimizers instead of the victims then you need to show us why that's dramatically compelling, and they don't. Uh, it picks up so much in the last hour, which is when it turns into more of a legal drama. It turns into basically what the original pitch for the movie was, which is the FBI coming in and investigating. Um, it gives it a sense of purpose for once. You're not just watching these horrors being enacted. It's actually got some, you know, the, the end is in sight. We've got some people who actually have goals and motivations that they're working to enact. Um, of course, uh, this movie is particularly interesting to our podcast because it does star this podcast patron saint character actor, John Lithgow. He is great, but he is criminally underused. Um, he plays the prosecutor that's brought in to um, prosecute Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Robert De Niro. He turns up with 35 minutes left in this three-and-a-half-hour movie, and he has four short scenes, but they're good ones. Uh, he spends a lot of time opposite Brendan Fraser, too, who is playing the defense counsel. And Brendan Fraser is giving this very interesting sort of slimy performance, which is mm. it's, it's just a way I've not seen Brendan Fraser used before. And it's, it's an interesting you spin. don't get You don't get a lot of heel turns from Brendan Fraser. No. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, it's technically brilliant, though. I mean, it looks wonderful, magnificent production design, the costuming, the way that they've captured the time and the place that this story takes place in uh, it's just beautifully shot that said i can't see the 200 million dollar budget on this thing <laughs> like that he you know credit to him like uh, for as much as many problems as i have with the movie i do think it's great that someone out there can still command a 200 million dollar budget for a big historical epic and not you know a cgi swathed mm. you know superhero thing or action movie or whatever but i can't see that 200 million dollars here you know gladiator i can see the budget killers of the flower moon i can't yeah um but yeah i i question the focus but even as the movie is here in its current form it could still be a fantastic movie if someone like pushed martin scorsese out of the way and barricaded themselves in the editing room with like a pair of garden shears that's when <laughs> this could come together. Like, fully, I would say that you need to cut at least 90 minutes out of this movie. Like, you need to cut a movie's worth of footage out of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, probably not going to win me many fans. I know that Martin Scorsese is someone that people uh, have a lot of love for. So do I. I think he's a spectacular filmmaker. But, but we've been you know, we've been critical of Scorsese before. Yeah, but like he's got <laughs> like there's just so much indulgence in this to yeah. the point where it is overtaken. It's like how you know when when you get to a certain level of fame in any in any creative industry, people stop saying no. The editor mm. stops having the power to say like it's like J.K. Rowling is now writing all these mystery books that are literally like 900 pages long. Like yeah. we don't need it. JK, there's a lot of things we don't need from you, but 900-page mystery books is one of them also. <laughs> um, I, but, I uh, am a fan of Scorsese. I've been a fan of a lot of his films, but... He needs to get out of his own way. Star of Shark Tale, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I will straight. never be able to forget that, the fact that he plays a character in Shark Tale, of all things. Isn't he playing, isn't he playing Sykes? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> He plays a character in this movie, too. And Mm. he sort of, I mean, he plays a character that really comes in to put a button on the entire story and, like, to wrap it up thematically and narratively. (laughs) He has the last line of the movie, and it's just like, did you you think that this was profound? Like, is that why you gave it to yourself? Like, That sounds like (laughs) such a wanky thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It really, it really is. Anyways, um, I would like to talk with you guys about it more once you've seen it. But mm. um, yeah, you probably it's probably something that you can wait until it comes onto Apple TV, and then yeah, Martin Scorsese may not want you to watch it with an intermission, but at that point he won't have a choice. I'll do so out of spite. <laughs> I'll um, pause it when I need to. That's my cinema experience. Um, at home, I saw the Three Musketeers. It is an action-adventure film directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, uh, loosely based, and I use the term loosely, underline it, put it in bold, uh, loosely based on the novel of the same name by Alexandre Dumas. It's set in 1600s France, where the young king, Louis, played by Freddie Fox, is an idiot. And uh, the country is instead being run, in, in actual fact, by an ambitious and treasonous cardinal named Richelieu, played by uh, Christoph Waltz, famous Frenchman Christoph Waltz, uh, and uh, he has schemes to take over the French crown um, on a more permanent basis, uh, and that involves framing the Queen, Queen Anne, played by Juno Temple, for an affair with a British lord named Buckingham, played by Orlando Bloom, which would then kickstart a war between the two nations and basically allow him to seize control. Uh, Anne realises that this is what's going on, and so she turns to three of Louis's special musketeers, Athos, played by Matthew McFadden, Porthos, played by Ray Stevenson, and Aramis, played by Luke Evans, uh, plus a precocious newbie they've picked up, um, D'Artagnan, played by Logan Lerman, to uh, stop Richelieu and prevent this war. But they find themselves up against the Cardinal's double agent, Milady de Winter, uh, played by Mia Jovovich, uh, who also happens to be Athos's old flame. This is a silly and breezy take on this story. Uh, it's quite entertaining. It's very stupid, but it's entertainingly stupid. It's the fairy floss version of The Three Musketeers. It's so clearly a response to the Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes movies. Um, like, they're trying to do that, but for another work of classical literature. Um 
Paul W.S. Anderson doesn't have much going for him as a director. And I would say that about almost all of his movies, bar perhaps Event Horizon. But at least he's having fun here. And that comes across. Uh, it comes across that they're having fun. And um, that is like, all you need, kind of. Uh, because the grim, dark stuff from him just does not come together. It doesn't work. It, it's a, a painful experience a lot of the times. I watched all of those Resident Evil movies, and my God. <laughs> like, no, I much prefer him in this mold. Also, it's a steampunk movie for some reason. He's written in flying airships into the mm-hmm. story. Uh, like, it's a very, a very weird take, apropos of nothing. Um the character development is rote when it exists at all, uh, but it, that leaves a, a quite a talented cast stranded with shallow material. Um, McFadden and Lerman come off quite well, although the latter only does so based on his own charm more than anything the script is giving him. But, you know, it's it's entertaining. Um, it's entertaining to watch these people, less so uh, to watch Mads Mikkelsen be stranded without a character. Um, mm. And to just sort of like look around confusedly for two hours. <laughs> um, but also Jovovich and Bloom, they're just hamming it up so much that it's it's a notch too far. Um, and the ambition of the film, what they want to depict with these flying airships and whatnot, frequently is too much for their CGI budget. So it can, can look quite a bit dodgy. They definitely wanted a, a franchise out of this. I mean, it ends on a sequel tease. But there's also this air of whatever, man, who cares to the whole approach. Mm. Like it feels, you can feel the lack of respect for the source material, which is tangible. Yeah. Which is the key difference between this and the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes is that that movie respected the books that it was based on. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's, it's diverting. It's, it's perfectly fun. But uh, if you want. It's a kind of a perfect example of like a mid tier movie of that time. Yeah. Or something if you're home if you're home from work sick and you just want to like sit under a pile of blankets and drink hot chocolate or something like whip a sure. movie on that you're not having to pay much attention to it's perfectly serviceable yeah. at that um it's available for streaming on prime video if anyone's interested i next saw the double uh it's a a thriller movie directed by michael brandt um and it follows a retired cold warrior um from the CIA, Paul Shepardson, played by Richard Gere. He's a spy hunter, and the white whale that he was always chasing was this Russian assassin named Cassius. And uh, he's called out of retirement after the CIA picks up Cassius' MO being used again in the 21st century, specifically in the murder of U.S. Senator. Um, mm. And uh, so he is partnered with a newbie, Ben Geary, played by Topher Grace, to find Cassius and stop him once and for all. Now, I'm going to say something that a lot of people are going to consider a spoiler. I don't think it is. It's in the trailer of the movie. Um, <laughs> it is telegraphed from so early on, um, but some people are going to consider it a spoiler. So if you are that t- type of person, by all means, please skip forward a few minutes until I'm talking about the next movie on my list. The problem uh, that the uh, the investigation comes into is that Shepardson is a double agent. He is Cassius. He's been hunting himself, quote unquote, for 30 years. Hmm. <laughs> um, so he's been like basically pretending this whole time yeah. that he's actually doing something. Yeah. He's um, shadow boxing. I love that. 
That's great. <laughs> and the reason, like, that's in the trailer, like, they give that away in the trailer. So it's clearly information that the studio wants you to know, which is why I don't consider it a spoiler. But also, mm. it's not, I don't consider it a spoiler because, frankly, it's the entire reason to watch this movie. Like, yeah. that's the intriguing part of that That plot sounds premise. very fun. Um, and it's what turns it into an above-average thriller that has a, a good spin to things. Uh, I, I, Like I said, I get why they're so eager to give it away. It's the whole point of the film. And as I also said, it telegraphs it pretty much from the start. Like, if you're paying attention, like, all of the loaded looks that Richard Gere is giving people and the way that he seems to be making choices that you wouldn't make if you really wanted this to be solved, um, you know, you figure it out long before that reveal at the 20-minute mark. Uh, the stuff before the actual reveal is fairly rote. It's sort of an early 2010s cable show kind of attitude to it, and, and not one of the expensive ones either. Um, but once they do make that switch, and once the audience does become aware that this guy is actually working against the investigation because he is himself the subject of it, uh, that spices things up. It becomes these two investigators within this team, and one of them is like they're operating against each other, and only one of them knows it. Um, the concept of Shepardson is more interesting than the reality of him, though. The movie sort of almost seems concerned that we're not going to want to watch Richard Gere for another hour and a half if we can't like him for some reason. And so uh, they give him this sob story for you know why we should feel bad for him and why we should want him to get away with it. Uh, but uh, it doesn't really gel. It works on the back of Richard Gere, who is very good here. And I'm perfectly fine watching a very slimy and unlikable Richard Gere. I did so in Chicago. Ah, he was entertaining. Running around, he wasn't likeable. running around murdering people in Chicago, though. Sure. That's true. <laughs> um, the the relationship between the two men could also have been utilized better, especially the way that Shepardson tries to use uh, Gere's wife, played by Odette Annabelle, sort of as his pawn to sort of like try and emphasize basically sidling up to his wife at the family dinner table and just saying, hey, you know, this uh, this Cassius guy, he could get real upset and murder your husband. <laughs> like to try and basically set her to try and convince him to quit the job, essentially. Um, like there could have been more stuff there and there could have been more to do with the team uh, uh, at the federals, uh, federal agency too, especially considering that Shepardson has been part of the CIA for so long. Um, He's literally an old friend of the guy in charge of the CIA, <laughs> like played by Martin Sheen. Like um, they've known each other for decades. Like he's should... in he is in truly so deep right now. Yeah, they should be a big part, bigger part of the story. And the finale, when it comes, wants to add one too clever a twist than it needed. It strains credibility, but it's entertaining in spite of all of that. It's lightweight, but it's fun lightweight, and it's that central premise is still a really good one lastly for this week i watched immortals it is a fantasy action movie directed by tarsam singh uh and it is set in 1228 bc when the brutal warlord hyperion played by mickey rourke is cutting a bloody swathe across greece in an effort to conquer mount tartarus and free the mythical titans who are imprisoned inside and uh, an ordinary young man named Theseus, played by Henry Cavill, learns that he is prophesied by the Oracle Phaedra, played by Frida Pinto, to be a key player in this conflict. What he doesn't know is that he is being supported by a benefactor, Zeus, played by Luke Evans, the king of the gods himself. 
Uh, you made a face, Harley. Have you seen this movie? Yes. Fa- uh, uh, famous Greek actor Mickey Rourke. <laughs> um, it is to Greek mythology what the Resident Evil movies are to the Resident Evil video games. It's the names, the concepts, but they basically are just doing whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. Um, it's clearly a 300 knockoff, but it is better than 300. Um, it's very entertaining, I found, but quite shallow nonetheless. Uh, it does what 300 did well while ramping down some of the tedious chest thumping that that mm. movie did and sort of took over it. It's very attractive. The designs of things, the way that they imagine ancient Greece and these mythological concepts, the Titans themselves especially are like pretty cool, um, like kind of creepy designs. Uh, and the cinematography is excellent as well. It, it looks more real than 300. It's not so mm. obviously on a green screen. But the effects do struggle sometimes against the budget. The twists on the mythology are quite cool. Again, I mentioned the Titans. I mean, they're sort of pictured as these these guys with who are like trapped in this in rows in this tiny cage in the middle of a hollowed out mountain hmm. with these bars through the cages that are sort of like they they act as as muzzles essentially because they're all, their teeth are all they're held in place, but the the hmm. bars go through their jaw with their jaws are open and it's going between their teeth and they can't do anything Mm. but bite down like it's a very cool kind of creepy almost hannibal lecter in the mask kind of Mm. of image because uh, one of the things that's noted in greek mythology is that the titans can move the earth with their very voice Mm. um there's a couple of of uh fx flourishes that are unnecessary but it's, it's mostly quite striking um and uh you know, the director has a form in that. Um, Tarsim Singh directed one of your favourite movies, yeah. Harley, The Cell. Um, He's got a very good visual eye. He does. I tell you what, The Cell is the, the movie that's going to appear to me when I arrive in hell to get the sins burned out of me. Um, and The Cell is going to... The memory of The Cell is going to be one of them. Uh, the story is a fairly traditional swords and sandals quest mixed with some fairly ultra-violent war stuff. There's nothing new in plot or in character, but there's a likeable cast. Cavill and Pinto are both very fun, um, very likeable leads. I was super iffy on Luke Evans as uh, Zeus and Mickey Rourke, especially as this ancient Greek warlord, but they actually really work. Like, Rourke and Evans both are acting the hell out of it, and they're sort of leaning into how ill-suited they may seem on the on the face of it to create some really interesting versions of these characters, these archetypes that they're playing. Uh, Isabel Lucas also turns up as Athena. Um, she does pretty pretty well in a little uh, in a little role that could go underserved if not cast correctly. I will say that the rest of the gods, all played by barely clothed beefcakes, um, don't work nearly as well. Uh, Kellen Lutz, uh, Emmett from the Twilight movies, <laughs> rocks up as, I think, Poseidon. <laughs> um, you think Poseidon? I think so. I mean, they all just kind of look the same. They're all just these buff guys walking around in, like, golden togas. and Just none blurs of them, together. None of them on the acting level of Luke Evans either. So they all just sort of blend in among each other. Uh, you also get uh, our boy Stephen McCaddy the guy from Pontypool, as uh, as the leader of the Greek, basically the, the prime minister or the president of the uh, 
the Greeks defending against Hyperion, who's sort of this Neville Chamberlain figure. Um, it's better as a light and sound exhibition more than it is as a story, but it's very fun to watch. And, and definitely, I mean, if you've got a, a like a 4K version of this or something, put on a really nice OLED would just look spectacular. Like, put it on the background and at a party or something, I don't know. I mean, it looks great. But that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So, kind of a slow week this week. A lot of television that we're still in the middle of watching. Uh, but we did get around to one of the movies we've spoken about getting around to. John and I have watched Gerald's Game, which is, of course, directed by Mike Flanagan, uh, adapting from the Stephen King story of the same name. And from what I can understand, it's a very, very close adaptation. To save their dying marriage, Jesse, played by Carla Gugino, and Gerald, played by Bruce Greenwood, attempt to spice up their relationship at a secluded lake tr- lakeside retreat. But rekindling long-lost affection and physical connection is easier said than done. Either way, Gerald is confident that handcuffs and aggressive sex games will do the job. Instead, an unforeseen complication ruins everything. Gerald has had a heart attack and died. Now handcuffed to a sturdy wooden bed, Jessie is about to play an entirely different game. But she is not alone. She will be tormented by visions of the now-dead Gerald, her imagined self, a hungry dog called Prince, and the eerie Moonlight Man, played by Carol Struckian. Isn't he Big Bird, Carol Struckian? I don't I'm going know. to Google that, because we know him as Lurch from the Addams Family movies, you know, the ones with uh, Christina Ritchie. But I'm going, actually, I'm going to check that. He was oh, yeah. also in Doctor Sleep as, as Grandpa, Grandpa Flick. I oh, never he mind. Played no, the giant no, he's in not. Twin Peaks. No, he's he's not Big Bird. No, imagine if he was though. That'd be brilliant. Big Bird is the casting in the Muppets version for the Moonlight Man. Definitely. Uh but John, <laughs> why don't you see a short piece about Gerald? Game? Big Bird was played by an actor called Carol Spinney, which is where I'm mm. getting that uh, confused. Oh. I enjoyed this. This is... You wouldn't think it on face value, but this is the darkest Mike Flanagan film, and it's his most uncompromising. And that goes to the things that Jessie has been through in her life and is continuing to go through due to Gerald's heart attack. This is shot beautifully, and it is fantastically acted by all of the players, Henry Thomas shows up, Carly Gugino, Kate Siegel shows up, because of course she does. And yeah, we've got Bruce Greenwood, and he's really great here too. And you get a lot of really good stuff from Carly Gugino. If I know that she's getting her flowers a lot for her performance as Verna in Fall of the House of Usher, but she's been this way for, for decades. She's been great for decades, and she continues to be really just a scene stealer now i this film is uncompromising there is one particular scene that is so visceral that it's if you've seen this movie you know what it is but it's it's just a credit to the filmmakers to carly gagino's acting and the people who made the prosthetic that it works so damn well and this is a chilling film about the consequences of being around aggressive men and manipulation and it's really all about relationships and the secrets people hide which is which makes this film an uncompromising watch it's not one that you leave feeling happy this is 
his, as I said, this is Flanagan's, I think personally, darkest film, darkest story generally, and is most uncompromising with what it is trying to say. Mm. But it is good. I don't know if I can recommend it to people because it's it's very grim, but it's really good. It's really well done by all or by everyone. The writing in particular is spectacular. These scenes between Greenwood, Carligagino, and Carligagino are really, really fun and very well acted. Uh, I really, really loved this movie. I didn't enjoy myself during several scenes, hmm. uh, but it is a masterclass of acting from Carligagino. She is phenomenal. She is wonderful in pretty much every Mike Flanagan project that she's been in, but this is where she really gets to shine, really gets to show off the fact that she can control the movie with her talent. Bruce Greenwood is great as well, because uh, he's not only playing Gerald, but he's also playing the Gerald that wormed its way inside Jesse's head, uh, the imagined Gerald. Uh, I love the practical effects. There's one particular scene that a lot of people uh, have spoken about uh, that involves quite a quite a talented act of prosthetic practical effects, uh, but also the makeup work uh, that is done for the Moonlight Man. Uh, Carl Strachan, he looks haunting here, and a lot of that is the prosthetics that they've added to his face, but it's it's his body language. He's He's a really strong figure in the movie, despite how little he is in it. I expected a lot more from him, but I'm glad that they kept it important when we see him. Uh, Henry Thomas is great here, but I never want to see him do this kind of performance ever again. He Henry Thomas continues to just amaze me, because, and this surprised Dad, he was Elliot from E.T., and mm. he's carved out this really interesting niche of just being able to do anything a director wants him to do. Yeah. Uh, I will second John's point about this being a feminist film. It is being told from... It is... Its sympathy lies solely with women. Like, solely. And that's very appreciated. I would push back on John's assertion that it's grim. It has a very hopeful ending. And it's an ending that's incredibly important. And it's an ending that really, really works for me. Uh, but, like John said, it's uncompromising. And you will get this sense of dread, and you will, at times, not enjoy yourself. But the movie isn't intending for you to enjoy yourself the whole time. Um, it's shot beautifully. Uh, Mike Flanagan always has a way with shot composition. He works with a really strong uh, cinematography team. His camera operators are always... So on point, but the editing is key here because a lot of the conversations are between the Jesse that's in bed, the Jesse that's that she's imagining walking around the room, and Bruce Greenwood. So it's a double hander, but it's also a triple hander in a sense, and that's pretty remarkable. Uh, this is an example of how Mike Flanagan can really take a Stephen King story and just do it straight. He's not adding in so many bells and whistles that it becomes entirely its own thing. He is not wasting time on unimportant factors. 
When Mike Flanagan adapts Stephen King, he just adapts the damn story. And that's really, really great. Uh, you can find Gerald's Game on Netflix. This, however, leads me towards my pith take. We have heard recently about the cast list for Mike Flanagan's next project, The Life of Chuck. I have recently listened to the audiobook of If It Bleeds. I'm partway through, but as this is a collection of short stories, I think I'm just going to discuss the first two that I've covered, because the second is The Life of Chuck. Uh, no, I'll just focus on Life of Chuck, as that one's a lot more fresh in my mind. So, The Life of Chuck is very, very interesting, because it is told backwards. It's told in reverse. Uh, we start off our story with a teacher who's driving home from work. The world is in a very shit state. Uh, a lot of the American breadbasket has suffered a great pestilence. Uh, telecommunication from around the world has become frayed and irregular. And the internet is just about dead. The world is dying. But on this teacher's way home from work, he sees a strange billboard on top of his local bank. Thank you, Chuck, for a wonderful 39 years. <laughs> this image will recur throughout the rest of the two next days. Not only appearing on billboards, not only appearing as skywriting, but also appearing when he tries to watch Netflix. The image of this man, Chuck, is the last thing anybody will ever see. And then, that's the end of chapter three. Then begins chapter two. Uh, I, I won't go too much further into this, because you definitely need to check this one out. I love this story. It is right up Mike Flanagan's alley. It is exactly what I want from a Mike Flanagan project post-Netflix. This is all about internal worlds, the lives we lead, you know, grief. It is about how connected everyone is to everyone else. It is about all of the different ways our lives can change and why we still need to try and live while we can. Um, to tell you any more about the story itself is to spoil its greatest element. Uh, I do believe that it reveals its hand a little too soon. I would have liked if King held off the major reveal to a little bit later on, perhaps when we go back to Act 1. But, again, I really like what King has done here. King has not fallen off uh, as he's grown as a writer. He is still really, really solid when it comes to his short stories. Uh, and why not? I'll talk about the first story that appears in If It Bleeds. A little number called Mr. Harrigan's Phone, uh, which many of you would recognize as having a Netflix adaptation currently. Uh, this one's very interesting. It is about a young boy who starts to be a reader for an old man, Mr. Harrigan, who is quite wealthy. Uh, and eventually, uh, this young boy teaches Mr. Harrigan how to use an iPhone. And eventually, Mr. Harrigan passes, and the boy, in an act of respect, puts Mr. Harrigan's iPhone into the casket. This young boy will call him up later on, and Mr. Harrigan will answer. Uh, Mr. Harrigan's phone, great short story. I'm really interested to see what they do in the movie, because I feel like this is a short story 
built to be written. I don't know how they're going to adapt this one, because there's a lot of people internalizing things in their heads, not a lot of action. And one of the benefits we get with the written word is internal monologue. The thought processes of the characters that we experience alongside them. And I don't know how this is going to be translated into a movie. I would like to check this out before our episode next week, uh, as I'm a big fan of the short story, and I would like to see what they do. I believe Jaden Martell's in that one. Yes, he is. Uh, and what's the what? Who's playing Mr. Harrigan in that? Donald Sutherland. Yeah. So I imagine it'll be quite good, uh, considering the cast they've got. Uh, but yeah, I'm a little more hesitant on a f- film adaption of that one because I don't know if there's a lot there because it rests primarily on the back of internal monologue. So. It'll be interesting, for sure, and I'm more than happy to check it out. All of these discussions of, like, haunted technology are very interesting coming from such a storied writer as Stephen King. And, I don't know, there was something also a little bit off about the person who was reading it in the audible version of If It Bleeds, which is the collection that it's part of. He makes the character sound so old. Like, the way- it's not just the voice, but it's the way- that the narrator reads it, and it's certainly not from the perspective of an old man, I can tell you that. So, it always gave me kind of like a, a strange vibe to it. Um, yeah, so I'm partway through If It Bleeds. The third portion of it is part of like a series that uh, Stephen King's been making, which is a spin-out of Mr. Mercedes, which I haven't read, so I'm holding off on uh, Chapter 3 till I've actually consumed all of that sort of Stephen King stuff. Well, yeah, that's the... Holly Gibney is the character, yeah. I think. and Because yeah, she's in a bunch of, like, yeah. King things now. So, I am not accustomed with that character whatsoever. I'll have to get around to it at some point. Stephen King truly has so many books, it is very hard to keep track. Uh... But yeah, uh, I listened to the Audible version. You can find it pretty easily. Yeah, you can find those stories in If It Bleeds. So get that wherever books are sold or Audible. We are not sponsored. No, it's simply the most, you know, convenient way to find it. But we wouldn't be annoyed if we got sponsored. (laughs) We're not against the concept. Uh, Anyone else have any other pith takes? Nope. 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 Uh, So now we're going to play for you the trailer to In Time. introduce my mother-in-law Clara, my wife Michelle, and my daughter Sylvia. Whoa, 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 where's the rest? Never met the quota. My units are up from last week. So is the quota. Just once I'd like to wake up with more time on my hand than hours in the day. How old are you? 28. I'm 105. The day comes when you've had enough. If you had as much time as I have, what would you do with it? Sure as hell wouldn't waste it.
last time anyone saw him alive, there was over a century on that clock. Well, follow the time. His name is Will Salas. You can't hide a hundred years in the ghetto. You know that time will get you killed. Hey, Mom, I'm gonna get out of here. I just wouldn't know what to do if I lost you. I don't believe we've had the pleasure of your company before, Mr. Salas. Will Salas. I'm sorry to have to break up the party, Mr. Weiss. I just need to work with your friend. This is my death. Please take me home. I can't do that. Why? You're keeping me alive. How can you live with yourself watching people die right next to you? You don't watch. You close your eyes. I'm gonna make them pay. I'm gonna take them for everything they've got. Come on, come on, help yourselves! Take the time, it's free! Put enough time in the wrong hands. You upset the whole system. Let's hope so. If this works, we gotta get more. I can help you get all the time you want. You know we're coming to get you. His crime wasn't taking time. He was giving it away. That was the trailer for In Time. It is a science fiction action movie written and directed by Andrew Nichol and it is set in the year 2169, long after a radical form of gene therapy completely transformed humankind's preferred form of currency by blocking all physical aging and allowing the transfer of people's lifespans between each other as payments for goods and services. Just go with it. (laughs) The idea is that people stop aging when they turn 25, at which point they are given one year of time to live on, the remainder of which is displayed as a fluoro-green digital clock on people's forearms, constantly counting down. Again, just go with it. You earn time the same way you earn money in the present day. Unsurprisingly, this has kicked off a time disparity between the rich and the poor, just like we experience now with cash, only much worse. Not everyone can live forever, obviously. The planet would become so overpopulated so quickly that it would be chaos. So the wealthy keep their thumb on the scale, dividing society into different time zones and charging expensive tolls to move between them, effectively ensuring that the poor are confined to ghettos living day to day until they run out of time and drop dead on the street somewhere. Meanwhile, the uber-rich live in glamour, in the rich time zones, with thousands of years to their names and a police force called the timekeepers to ensure that the status quo is maintained. It's in this dystopia that we find our protagonist, Will Salas, played by Justin Timberlake, a poor factory worker barely getting by with his mother Rachel, played by Olivia Wilde. Then two things happen almost simultaneously. First, Will is gifted over a century of time by a guilt-ridden rich guy who quickly thereafter throws himself from the top of a bridge. Second, Rachel dies suddenly, after a sudden price increase in bus fares leaves her stranded in the middle of nowhere, with a timer quickly counting down to zero. Completely disillusioned, Will travels to the richest time zone in America, Greenwich. Get it? Greenwich mean time? (laughs) Mean time? They are very mean about their time, this is true. There he meets an obscenely wealthy banker named Philippe Weiss, played by Vincent Carthizer and his daughter Sylvia, played by Amanda Seyfried, schmoozing his way into one of their fancy dinner parties and rubbing elbows with the oldest people still living. The system is designed to ensure this kind of upward mobility can't happen, however. 
The death of Will's benefactor has been noticed, and he's soon pursued by the Timekeepers, led by Raymond Leon, played by Killian Murphy. In a panic, Will takes Sylvia hostage, fleeing with her back to the ghetto, where she quickly comes to sympathise with him and his neighbours, after seeing how much is stacked against them. The pair come up with a Robin Hood scheme. They rob Sylvia's father's banks one by one, redistributing time to those who need it most. Philippe and Raymond can't let that happen. Their world is built on the downtrodden and desolute. They can't countenance any of the poor's getting ideas and ambition. Soon enough, Will and Sylvia are the most wanted fugitives in America, but as their legend grows, the establishment realises that it's hard to put time back in the bottle once it's already been spilt. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed uh, 30-second thoughts on In Time. Uh, Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Three, two, one, go. This is time that I won't get back. Not that I hated this movie. It has an interesting concept. It's got interesting ideas behind it. But it, funnily enough, wastes so much time. And it is far longer than it needs to be. It has some decent acting from the main players. But generally, it's not as smart as it thinks it is. And all of its critiques of capitalism and the system are just skin deep. Alright, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Uh, it's kind of like we said at the beginning. If Philip K. Dick fell down a manhole, woke up with a concussion, losing his ability to write... Uh, he's got he the idea. To... Yeah. He's definitely got the idea, but he has lost all subtlety that he once had, if he indeed had it to begin with. And yeah, and the mole people are coming. The mole people are coming. Uh, Killian Murphy's here. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I really like this movie. I uh, yeah, I, I think it it's too. junk food philosophy, but it's philosophy nonetheless. It's a big idea, clumsily executed and clumsily, clumsily explained, but I think it's also a big swing, and I appreciate that. It's creative, it's compelling, it's, it's got quite an intriguing world that it's exploring. It doesn't always explore it to the degree that it should, but at the same time, I also think that it's a movie that came out a little too soon, that I think it would have resonated a lot more if it had come out a little bit later than it did. Um, And it's probably worth just addressing right off the top here that this is a director that we've already done, one of his movies. Andrew Nichols is the writer-director of Gattaca, which we did And we all said that we quite enjoyed Gattaca. Yes, I believe we are a pro-Gattaca podcast. Um, Let me just check here. We did that in episode 43. Hmm. Um, How time flies! (laughs) Yeah, August 2020 was when we did Gattaca. Um, I think we had a good like we had a good run of episodes around there. I think we had a run of Titanic, Starship Troopers, Gattaca, and LA Confidential. I think that was when we really sort of found our feet in mm. terms of the tone of the podcast. Definitely. Um but uh I think that this is um you know it's clearly something that shares a similar DNA to Gattaca in the oh, sense absolutely. that 100%. it's taking this idea, it's taking this concept of what's something that, you know, is an issue of class and an issue of division in present day society. And now let's expand it out and follow it through to its most, you know, complete, you know, 
extreme end point. Obviously, mm. for for this time around, it it's money, um, and that old you know adage of time is money. <laughs> but um, yeah, but that, there is also something very tangible about that idea too, mm. because what is one of the things that employees are paying for? It's not just the labor; it's your time. Well, yeah, it is the, st- it is the time you spend at work. Is that's what you're never going to get back. This is that to the extreme. Time is what you work for. Time is what you spend working. Time is, is what you spend to purchase things. Well, it's it also is, what we are trying to get as employees in the system, ultimately, mm. is we're trying to bankroll enough money so that we have the time that we won't have to go and work, you know? Yeah. Exactly. We're trying to squirrel away enough savings so that one day we'll go home and we won't have to go back in the next day. Um, yeah. And we can live in retirement, which I'm greatly you looking run forward you to. You run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. The song Time by Pink Floyd is quite apropos to this topic itself because time is one of those things that can drive someone crazy. Time is, again, money is so that we can get more time, time to do the things we want to do. And that is shown here that the rich can do whatever, but if they do something reckless and they die, that time is gone. That money is gone. And so they don't do the things that they want to do. They have to be extremely careful and buttoned up and not take any risks. I also really like how they emphasize in the movie that the rich, they don't know the value of time. It's it's the people in the lower socioeconomical areas that have to haul ass every day. Mm. They rush to jobs that give them a meager amount of time left that they have to do to rush home only to rush back to work. And it is this predatory cycle. And it brought to mind a thought that I've had for quite a while now. We all know the value of $100. We, we know how much that, that, how much that can mean to somebody. How many dinners that can buy in a week. People like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, the billionaires, they do not understand the value of $100. They theoretically do. They don't they don't know what it means. And it's the same thing here in this movie with all of the people down there like our lead character Justin Timberlake, he he understands what an hour means better than anyone else does. Let's just get this out of the way now, that the height of irony here is that Justin Timberlake, of all people, is the mouthpiece for the, uh, you know, the plight of the proletariat in yeah. this <laughs> capitalist allegory. Um, I do think that, you know, it's just, it is kind of like, it's the uneasy collision of art and commerce, isn't it? The the friction inherent in the term show business, whenever you do a story like this or a story with this kind of allegory that... You know, no matter what, this is a a movie that stars many, many, many millionaires and was made for $40 million by a major studio with the intent to make many millions more. And it it did make many millions more, $180 that went into the the pockets of that studio. Because Justin Timberlake (laughs) 
Timberlake brings a crowd. Mm. And it's not that he isn't good in the movie. It's not that he isn't a good actor. I reckon he is a good actor. It's just... It's something that you have to get past in order to look at what the movie is saying. Because when he shows up in Granite, in New Greenwich, rather, and you see him buying fancy cars and eating fancy meals, wearing a suit and tie, haha, Justin Timberlake song. It's, that's the world you expect to see him in. You don't expect to see him down on his luck, begging for time in a dive bar with Jared Padalecki. Not Jared Padalecki, what's, the guy from Big Bang Theory. Galecki. Oh, Johnny Galecki. Johnny, Johnny, sorry, I always get their names wrong, Johnny Galecki. You don't expect him to be hanging out with Johnny Galecki. And now I'm just imagining, like, you know, the supernatural revival and Johnny Galecki <laughs> turns up and is like, damn it, Sharon, I said Jared Padalecki. <laughs> <laughs> like, we want well, Sam, not that guy from Big Bang Theory. It's like, I thought you wanted Leonard from Big Bang Theory, but if you don't, you're going to be really pissed off by the person I've got playing Dean. He walks in, bazinga! But uh, as I was watching this movie, part of me was thinking, what if you just swapped Killian Murphy and Justin Timberlake? Had them play each other's characters? Because I feel like it makes more sense that way. Mm-mm. You're right that I, it does. It makes more sense, but I think we'd be losing a lot of Killian Murphy basically playing Inspector Javert. Yeah. I mean, like, he's a. I like that role for him. He's an old, grizzled cop in the body of a 25-year-old. All right, let's just get this out of the way. Bullshit. Killian Murphy is not 25 in this movie. Killian oh, Murphy... Oh, no. Like, you're seeing people in this movie because, as listeners heard in the description of the plot, aging stops at 25 in this movie. So everyone in this film is vaguely in their mid-20s, except for a few people... Do not look it. Except Killian Murphy, who is in his 30s and looks it. Yeah, they've, um, they have run out of actors that exist within the age range yeah. of 25 to 30. And they fucking scrounge. Yeah. They scrounge for people who look 25. <laughs> Johnny Galecki um, is also like 35, 36 when this yeah. movie comes out. And again, I, mean, I don't know if it's the drinking that did this to his character, if it's the hard living, but yeah, he don't—he doesn't look twenty-five. Yeah, Matt Bomer mm. is in his mid-thirties. Like these, these people are not thirty. Like the only people who they are not twenty-five. The only people who actually look like they actually match the premise that were being sold here are Timberlake, Seyfried, um, Carthizer, and maybe Olivia Wilde. Carthizer, he feels young, akin to the Culkins. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, he looks like he's he is incredibly Culkin adjacent. Yeah, when yeah. we saw him in this movie, we're like, there's some kind of that has to be some kind of familial connection between them because mm. he looks like a Culkin. He looks like the Culkins kind of guy... have a very specific look, like mm. wealthy heroin addict is their look. He's the kind of guy who definitely cries like a Culkin. He cried. Yeah, that's true. Um, but oh, like, I think and, Matt Bomer may have been a better pick than Justin Timberlake. But again, you're not getting that Timberlake audience in if you just have him in there for a moment and then falling off a bridge well, into a system. Look, see, I they think Timberlake they, 
works as the main character. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. he's actually really good. Yeah, and he's very charming. It's it's in this interesting period of his career where he's trying to pivot to acting mm-hmm. a little more as a um as something that like like what uh what Lady Gaga is doing now with yeah. mm-hmm. all of her acting things. But but whereas Lady Gaga seems to be wanting to continue it in perpetuity, um Justin Timberlake does this like actually kind of high intensity little period in 2010 2011 where he's uh in bad teacher friends with benefits in time and the social network all mm. like pretty quickly mm. and and he's really good in the social network and doesn't of course, he do the voice of arthur in shrek 3 yes, yes. but that that's a few years before yeah. and of course who could yeah. forget uh his legendary turn as the voice of boo boo in yogi bear uh in this <laughs> yes. this time period Fucking also. right of course yep him but and then, Dan Aykroyd is Yogi and Boo Boo. But then he just drops out of it, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like, he shows up in a bunch of Lonely Island stuff. I yeah. know that he shows up for a cameo in Popstar, but... I mean, he after... does the voice of... He's in the um, Trolls movies. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. He does a voice in that. He's actually just got a... Um, I think it's a... Is it a Netflix movie that it's just come out? Uh, Reptile? Um... But uh, he just sort of stops acting or pursuing acting in quite a in a, in a way that is um, doesn't seem commensurate to the effort that he was putting in for that little while there. And you know, fair play to him. Maybe he was just like, eh, I don't like this as much as being Justin Timberlake and singing <laughs> and doing all that stuff. But um, getting people getting people's money simply by being Justin Timberlake. But he's I don't good think here. he's released a new album in a while. But again, he's been releasing music with the Trolls movies, so that's put <laughs> can't stop the feeling into the fucking charts, even though it is mixed like a brick wall. But hey, like, that's my hey, own. Hey, it's better issues. than that god awful Despicable Me happy song. I hate that with every fiber of my being. Doesn't make Not a very Pharrell happy. guy. I haven't heard enough of Pharrell to for me to know one way or the other. But happy is like. Like it's like nails on a chalkboard. It's got that kind of skin crawling. It makes you the opposite. Mm. It makes it's, you it's sad. Not, it's not the Despicable Me song that I think about. I think about the Minions rendition of uh, I swear, I swear. Mm. Um, but I think he's good here, Timberlake. Yeah. I mean, I think that that the scene that stands out to me in particular is the scene where Olivia Wilde dies. Yeah, like mm. that's just good acting. Yeah. Oh I yeah. Mean, it's not like well a, staged. It's not like Oscar-winning acting, but it's good acting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know he could have absolutely made a go of it in this sort of like, um, not Chris Pratt because Chris Pratt's got a very particular vibe, yeah. but like that level of role or a Ryan Reynoldsy oh, yeah. kind of thing where you yeah. know fronting these big hundred million dollar, hundred fifty million dollar movies. He could be a cheap Gosling. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Like, like home brand Gosling. Mm. I think that kind of level would work really well for him because he kind of has the same thing going on. Yeah. Look, and the man has an inherent charisma. He was part of an he was part of In Sync for God's sake. the The man brought sexy back, so it's not like we were working with an absence of ability here. Mm. He's good at what he does. He gets the audience on side. The first moment in this movie where the whole everyone's 25 thing really hit me was when he walks out 
I I thought Olivia Wilde was there as like his girlfriend or something. But then he's like, hey, mom, me thinking that there's, they've got some kind of thing going on. I'm like, well, that's weird. But uh, hey, I'm not going to judge. <laughs> do You do you, I guess, in the privacy of your own home with a camera there. But then they keep going, oh, no, no, that's his mother. Yeah. yeah. This is a that's, fucked that's up world. Thi- this is a fucked th- up world. Yeah, that's one of the things that throws it into, you know, that sort of stark relief. Mm. Like, what? how does that change how the world functions? Yeah. Because some people there are over 100, and... What I thought would have been kind of interesting was actually having some older actors around. Um, mm. Like, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who were very wealthy at the time that this gene therapy came into being. And just stayed that way. Yeah. That these are people, and make them like like the people who, like you could have made Vincent Carthys' character like a 50-year-old actor who hmm. was kind of responsible or owned the company that came up with this treatment. Hmm. You know? like he had he had such immense wealth there that he simply was like, let's just he just buys around. himself the time. Hmm. Because Imagine Christoph Waltz as this character. Hmm. Uh, how... How long since this particular treatment was put in place are we to understand that this occurred? I think this is a, like because Vincent Carthys' so character after. is eighty. Yeah, I think that there's um, and he would have had to age to twenty five. Yeah, like are we to assume like it's been truly so long since things were the normal way that? Because I think that would have to take, like, a hundred years. Well, it is supposed to take place in 2169. Yeah. Yeah, that, w- that would make sense. Um, Because we there are no old people. I'm just trying to find here... There was a bunch of stuff in the IMDb trivia that kind of did a bunch of... um. Yeah, the the Boma character, who I believe is the, the oldest character we hear about on screen, mm. the, the person... Like, they say he's over a hundred. Mm. Um... I don't know where they've gotten this from. Maybe it was in PR material or something. But according to IMDb, he was born in 2065. Mm. So that's mm. that is definitely interesting. Oh no, Philip Philip Weiss is not 80. He's older than that. He's o- over 100. Oh okay. I thought he said something about 80. Mm. Well, it's a um, it's an interesting little thing, and I do think it's interesting as an acting exercise that you got all of these actors mm. who are the same age or around the same age as each other and look very similar, and they're all playing characters of different ages and different familial relationships. I mean, that Seyfried is playing Carthys' daughter, that Timberlake is playing Wild's son. Um, mm. It's very... It's interesting. I like, do think... Carthys pulls the old man of it off, Yeah, I think. Like, there's something just a... It's in the quality of voice mm. that really makes it work. There's an he narrows his eyes, mm. and yeah, it's it's such a fascinating exercise as a performer because obviously they still have the bodies of twenty five year olds. Yes, mm. it is their minds, their internal worlds that have aged, and they can't play that up. It they has can't to be remove a lot the more weight subtle. of experience. It has to be a lot more subtle than just bending over a lot. And bending over like, a lot. You know when people pretend to be old, they arch the back a little bit because the spine bends with age. They uh, have a little knock to their knees. They slow down. A lot of 
detailed work can go into playing a person who is older than yourself. Hmm. And there are a lot of actors who can do that. But it's a much more interesting exercise if you are truly so very old, but your body has remained young. And- someone who would have been good would have been um, Matt Smith. Yes. Because he's got yes. he walks that line very well in his Doctor Who stuff. And he would mm, have been around absolutely. the right age, I think. Um, I mean, part of the problem here, I mean, we talked about, you know, the casting issues, people looking older or, you know, whatever. There aren't a great deal of 25-year-old movie stars. You no. need You need a while to establish yourself yeah. um, and actually get to the – I mean, short of – and it would have been kind of interesting, actually, if you cast Timberlake and Seyfried and literally everyone else you just cast out of audition. That would have been yeah. pretty cool. But yeah. I suspect that a premise like this is weird enough that a studio wants as many recognisable faces as Yeah, they, they, they want to hedge yeah. their bets. They want to mm. be sure. So I imagine they could have just solved the problem because they could have solved the problem at uh, stopping ageing at 30. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know many people who would like to get stuck at 25. Like, a lot of people look at 25 as an ideal age, but, you know, if you're going to be existing that way forever, you don't want to be stuck physically well, I think that's anymore. Why not? Was. Why not, Harley? I don't know. I'm just 30, and I, that- I'm, I'm turning 30 in a few months. My back clicks when I stand up now. I didn't used to do that. <laughs> I'm saying, like, like, you're a couple of years younger than me, and I'm not, like, saying, oh, my body's falling apart. It's not, but, like, I can't do the things... I can't do several things now that I could do at 25. Like, it it does no, start uh, earlier than you think it does. Look, I get that. I'm 27, and sometimes I have trouble standing up. But <laughs> okay. that's just because... That makes me feel not... better about my back. <laughs> that's because... That's just because we're it, not very fit people, Harley. No, it, I think... It all also comes down to the nature of what we do for work, but there's... I don't know. There's something a little more respectable about 30 Get, like getting aging arrested at the age of 30 i Plus, think it, it makes would solve sense that they want them at 25 they stopped it at 25 for vanity pure vanity yeah and they think it's where they can do more stuff that's well, when they're their most no, no, attractive I get that, but like on a practical level for the filmmakers who are writing the scripts they could just no, I fudge they... the numbers and make it 30 i still think 25 was the perfect yeah. age to pick I mean, it, because you're an adult sort of, but you haven't yet yeah. most 25 spot, year olds but after the brain has finished developing but before yeah. the body has begun to deteriorate exactly and it's the person hasn't gone through all of these life experiences like they haven't had a child yet or they haven't gotten married yet but they can still see right in the rearview mirror when they were in the early 20s when they would go to parties every weekend and all of this stuff so twenty five is that sort of perfect. Well, also both spot. of you, both of you, almost seem to be approaching this from a social angle. Um, what does it mean socially or culturally to be twenty five versus thirty? Mm. When act, what that's irrelevant. What we're talking about here is actual, actually, the physical angle, the body that you mm. are going to be in for the rest of your existence, natural or otherwise. Um, mm. And in in that sense, it makes it makes perfect sense because this is the point where the the human body is you know fully matured and has not yet begun to make strange clicking noises or you know stuff like that. Your metabolism um, slows as you get older. Your hmm. your ability to bounce back from certain like even you know people who are thirty 
are affected by alcohol in different ways, are affected by yeah. fast food in different ways. I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why it's easier on the body to be 25 than it is to be 30. No, of all yeah, of the things, that. of all of the things inherently unusual about this premise, this is not the one I thought we were going to get stuck on. Yes. Okay. Uh. So your money is being taken away from you every time you sleep, every time you go to the toilet, every time you mm. get knocked unconscious, and you don't have a minute man who's trying to take okay. your life away. I, I like, do have. I understand I have the idea question. of. Money is time, and time is money. I get that. But in literalizing it, by having yeah. people be doing things that don't cost money in our world, or, well, in the perfect world, wouldn't cost money, because everything costs money these days, but you know what I mean. Yeah, That simply big existing idea. takes the money away. Yeah. It's such a big idea that it becomes kind of unwieldy as anything but metaphor. Exactly. Yeah. And, and as we were watching this, I was saying to Holly, look, it's got interesting ideas, but he can't really do anything with them. So it's got to go in this direction of he meets Amanda Seyfried and then they become Robin Hood type figures. And well, yeah, it, sort it of has a... to go in that direction because it's realized that it's unable to talk any deeper about the context. Okay, I do have a functionality question here. So after the the mobsters, you know, ambush uh, Timberlake and Seyfried, the leader of their little gang, he steals the time yes. from her. Yeah. By just grabbing her hand and draining it out of her like a vampire. And so they're supposed to be telling me that one simply cannot secure their bank account. I believe it's got something to do with mental resistance because there's that... Um there's that thing later on where they're having the arm wrestle thing, and it's to do with how much focus Timberlake is giving the Pettifer character versus how much focus the Alex Pettifer character is giving Timberlake. I yes, think it's I, got something to do with that. Look, I, I'm not. It doesn't work. Like, let's just, no, just stop beating like, around I'm, the bush. I'm just, I'm just saying. Like, surely to be able to spend it, you would have spend it or give it. You would have to. I don't know intend to do so yeah like uh, my functional problem is not with the countdown that's incredibly vital to the dramatic tension of the film but what i'm saying is any old person can just grab your hand drain your life and run away i don't think that's true because i i think that they've got to kind of catch you or overpower you mentally look i don't know like this is the thing it's not here. explained you need to either you got to kind of give the movie this. This is its premise, right? It's like when we talked in Harry Potter about the, you know, the workplace health and safety problems of having all those moving staircases, yeah? Like, on a practical level, trying to figure out how does that actually work, it, you know, it doesn't work. But it, that's the aesthetic of the place. That's the world building. Well, and, in Harry Potter, they can grow back bones by giving you juice. Yeah, so as long as you're still like, living. Like... <laughs> If, if you if you, you hit the ground on one of those solid stone rails, you're not getting back. Yeah, no matter if how, you fall how, unconscious, how on, carries you. Yeah, if you fall unconscious in Hogwarts and you wake up at a tr uh, like pitch white train station, then <laughs> they didn't get yeah. you to Madame Pomfrey with enough time. But you know, like, you see a weird little 
gross baby thing in the corner. It's, it's like, it's like, oh, I thought the, that was special for Harry. No, no, everyone no, no. sees that. Everyone gets to see Voldemort's shitty little soul. <laughs> but that's just inherent in the premise, and and yeah. that is the inherent. It's one of the reasons I think the movie is so interesting, but it's also one of the movie's biggest flaws is that its idea is so big and so unusual that it just can't really you can't follow it through you can't Mm. trap down all of the loopholes and stuff that's in it you can't close off the thinking because it's too large an idea which is where the divide comes between this and Gattaca the Gattaca is actually not that much it all it basically is is a super soldier thing almost is that Mm. they're just altering the genes of babies to um have them be immune to certain diseases and have them be, you know, all of the things that we are predisposed genetically. It's like making sure every one of them won the genetic lottery. But with this, it's like this fluoro countdown thing on their arm. They're like trading time. People have been living for a hundred years, time zones. Like it's a much wilder concept. You tell me they wouldn't have monetized it from like, being able to change the font of the numbers or being able to change the colour of the fluoro. Like- and at the beginning, we see Tim Blake wake up and the light is so aggressive. So bright. I it's don't so know how he bright. gets to sleep. Well, there's that interesting thing where someone says that, I forget who it is that says it, but even if they lose the arm, the countdown doesn't stop. It just keeps going. You just don't know what the count is anymore. Mm. That's fucked up. Yeah, but that's an that's an interesting premise. Like, there's so much there. And that's where I reject your... I, I reject what you were saying, Jean, that it doesn't do anything with the ideas. I think it does a lot with the ideas. I think what this movie is doing thematically and, and intellectually is very much tied to the sort of economic realities of post-global financial crisis 2011. But yeah. um, at the time, I think it was just... it. The world that it was depicting seemed so extreme that... Um, it, even then, it, it didn't strike one as it, – it, it seemed a bit more of a polemic, mm. you know. And th- you got to remember, this movie comes out months before the Occupy Wall Street movement. Like, even mm. that hasn't happened when this movie comes out. Mm. But all of the stuff that it's talking about here, obviously, there's the in- income disparity. But, you know, the ghettos, you know, the, the neighborhoods and, you know, the cost of housing, people not being able to move between location and other locations, the way that the cost of living, um, no matter how hard you work, the cost of living keeps rising. So you can't, you know, overcome that the way that the cops are there to maintain law and order, but they're there to maintain a status quo, which is weighted in favor of the very rich and very powerful. Like this is all stuff that has become very much part of the sort of let's say Bernie Sanders AOC kind of like rhetoric that has become much much more mainstream in 26 2017 2018 um that I think that if this movie had come out in say 2018 2019 the world that it depicts obviously in terms of its actual reality in terms of its you know taking it on face value with the time thing and everything it's it's got those problems it's got those faults and you've got that you know Basically, any science fiction movie has that kind of problem. It's just this one wears it on its sleeve, like literally. But um, the the allegory, the metaphor, is actually pretty spot on. And is... I think if it came out at around that time, it would have had more meat on the bone that it could actually talk about mm. in a 
more reasonable way. Like part of the reason why I don't think the discussions work so well is that it doesn't really have terribly much subtlety and that it goes for the extremes in in those situations that I don't think if it came out in say 2016 2017 I feel like a lot of things had would have happened in the world that would make the writers think of other decisions they could make mm. other ways to create a better atmosphere for the story and maybe different directions for the story to go in like the context well, yeah. with which we make movies set does something to those movies and it, that, yeah that's what i'll co-sign with you is that the second half of this movie pivots in a like really oh, weird yeah. direction it also like, drags yeah it's it's sort of a movie of two halves right that the first half is very gattaca-esque oh yeah like, I, I like my issues weren't with the first half i want to say that like the first part where before say before he kidnaps amanda seyfried everything up to there, I'm down with. I'm thinking, this is interesting. It's not as clever as it thinks it is, but it's got ideas, and it's got there's, themes. There's even is... a bit where they, like, swim out into the open ocean. Like, Yeah, yeah it's, it's saying something. That's a Gattaca thing. It's saying something about how people with money don't take risks. People who have to risk everything to feed their families are rushing to and from. They've got multiple jobs, multiple income streams, because they have to. Yeah. Well, there's that line the of dialogue. Poverty, the... the ghettos, the fact that people are dying in the streets and no one is moving the bodies. That is saying something. That's doing something. Well, because but when it, it becomes you know, a action movie, it starts not thinking through its dis- decisions, not thinking thinking through its themes as much, and it just becomes this different film. Yeah, it's the first half of the movie is very Gattaca-esque, right down to the sort of infiltrating high society by pretending that you're a member of the elite when you're actually a member of the common folk um but the uh the pivot that it makes in the second half it's like i don't know whether it's that nichols didn't have the confidence in his premise to follow it through in the way that he did with gattaca or whether and i think this is more likely that the studio just wasn't wasn't going to give him that much leeway um but it does pivot into a like, well, how do we make this a thrillery thing? How do we make this an action-y thing? How do we take this premise and get some explosions in there? And it mm. doesn't quite work. What it, what it ends up with is this bizarro kind of Robin Hood meets Bonnie and Clyde. Um, there's like elements in there of uh, John Paul Getty and Patty Hearst. Like it's a very weird switch that it takes. And there were parts that felt like the end of Ready Player One, bizarrely. Yeah, like, I with, suppose. With, like, using the crowds as a weapon, almost, mm. against the people chasing you kind of thing. Yeah. Like, one of the elements that's interesting in the back off is we find out how the time uh, timekeepers work. It, so the timekeepers are essentially what amounts to cops. In this world, they they keep the time, as their name would suggest. Killian Murphy is our primary timekeeper here. He's been doing the job for about 40 years, I think he says. 50. And one of the interesting elements that we see is they don't have much time. I think that's specifically him. No. That he doesn't keep too much time on him. No. Well, they they don't. It's all of them. It's all of them, but he 
doesn't take his daily allotment until he's got like 15 minutes left. Yeah. Like everyone else is just getting it at breakfast time and they've got enough for the day. So basically they have to move very fast. They have to, over the course of their day, they need to be on point. Well, that's or it's the connection. They'll that... run out before their investigation ends. Well, they get, they get a daily allotment. Like I don't think. It's yeah, I like... know. Yeah, but even the daily allotment thing feels like shackles almost. Yeah, feels like they're being ch- literally chained to the job. Yeah, because if they but... lose that job, and here's another direction it could have taken it: you lose the job, you lose your insurance, you lose your ability to stay healthy and stay alive. Well, that's pretty much what it is. Like, yeah. if he, if he loses his job, he like that's the interesting thing about Killian Murphy's character is he's from the slums. He's yeah. signed on to this job. He's signed on to this way of life. Um, he's joined the system. If you can't beat him, join them. And so he is. If you want to use, you know, sort of radical capitalist socialism theory or whatever. Um, a class trader, you know, he has joined the system and is now responsible for enforcing the wills of the system in such a in such a manner that keeps the people who used to be his friends and neighbors locked into place, unable to yeah, improve their Yeah, he's pulled existence. the ladder up behind him. Exactly, yeah. but it's like, but even then, he's he's not a member of the elite. He's not no. a member of you know he he's he's part of the system. That the system, the same system that keeps the people beneath him down, also prevents him from rising any higher. He's a yeah, cog the system in a doesn't respect him exactly. He's a he gun is, being pointed is, at the poor people. He is times middle management. Yeah, and one of the fascinating things about Killian Murphy's character is that he knew uh, Salas's father. Mm. Uh, Salas being the last name of Justin Timberlake's character. He, didn't, he knew the man's been, father. We have been just calling him Justin Timberlake over the course may, of this may episode. As well. May as well. And may it as he well? Saw... Like, I'm, I'm, I want to drill into that a little bit because there's a sort of flippancy with which you're both approaching the characters and the story here that I'm a little surprised by. Like, why might he just as well be Justin Timberlake? Like, what Justin Timberlake's public persona as an entertainer and as someone with no, no, charisma, no, how does that match... Onto the character that's presented here. Beyond... I was being a, I was being a bit flippant when I said me as well. I simply struggled to remember his name. Yeah. I mean, we all we do usually in this podcast go back and forth yeah. between characters' names and it, actors' names. It's just a easier shorthand, but I wanted to mention the character's yeah. name to provide context. Uh, uh, Killian Murphy's character he he know he knew the man's father. Yeah, and he saw him not only betting his time. But giving it away, yeah, and it's and... made it's made very explicit in a deleted scene that's on the disc that um, Will's father was killed for giving away time, and that yeah. Killian Murphy's character in his role as timekeeper was present at that killing. That he didn't kill it himself, but it he was there with his compatriots, and you know, it's like this one brief flashback scene, which I get why they cut, because it removes all the ambiguity. It's like the only flashback scene you get in the entire thing of mm. Killian Murphy watching, basically, as his colleagues kill Will's father. That makes it very, very obvious that this this is a corrupt system that's built, and the timekeepers are just part of that system. Yeah, and that seems to have affected him Yeah, in a very significant way, because the moment he, he hears what 
Salas said, he's like, oh, I remember that. And I get the feeling that he doesn't like the system the way it is either. He's very frustrated by it, but he's like, what else? Yeah, exactly. He's frustrated by it, but he's unwilling to actually enact anything to change it. Yeah, um, and and the the fact that he, unlike the rest of the timekeepers, only takes his time in fifteen minute allotments. I don't think that's the case. I think I think he just leaves it until the very end. Yeah, he till the very last minute. I don't think he takes fifteen minutes right. at a time. Yep. Sorry. Yeah, I misremembered that. But he doesn't really top himself up as often as you might expect. Well, also, and- like it's not made clear, but is he? He's also from the ghetto. He's used to living on time, time. on low time. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he is one of the people who first draws attention to the idea that, um, you know, Will is so obvious in New Greenwich because he moves so quickly. He eats quickly. He, when he buys a car, he intends to drive it. Yeah. He, so like he you were gets saying, shit done. Like you were saying before about how, you know, the, incredibly wealthy don't understand the value of a hundred dollars killian murphy understands the value of 15 minutes yeah exactly and but he's still been away from that life for long enough to have lost his edge as well which is interesting as well because when he sees tim blake at the end he's like man you can run and i don't know there's something so interesting about that character i wish we spent a little more time with that character It's almost like it would be more interesting if it was told from his perspective. Mm. Sort yeah. of a equilibrium-esque thing. It would have been the Philip K. Dick choice. Yeah. But at the <laughs> end, too, like it's it's telling, and I think important, that he ends up choosing to back the system in. He doesn't have yeah. this kind of like turn at the end where he helps Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried. He's trying to stop them right until the very end. And his attitude throughout, whenever he talks about this, is like, you can't fight the system. You mm. can't like this is how it is. You got to go. Broken. With, you got to go with the flow. You can't break the chain. Mm. Essentially, like and, and like by the end, he misses chance to do his top up mm. because he was rushing. Yeah, he times out on the street, and the last thing he has, basically the only thing he seems to have in his life is I keep the time. Yeah, and well, he there's it's, the. It's a, a weird tragedy of the character. It's a method of control for him, too. It's the way that he yeah. exerts control, what little control that he has over his life and his existence. He exerts it over the Carthizer character when he refuses to um, be bribed. Yeah. It's like, you don't have the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be participate in this system, but I'm going to participate in this system. Like, yeah. I'm going to match to these sets of rules. It's almost because, like that's the only way that he can justify it to himself. Because doesn't Carthizer, he offers him, like, thousands of years. Yeah. yeah, he does. And he's like, you don't have enough time to offer me. But, like, that seems almost <laughs> like, you know, he can justify taking part in the system. Mm. He can't justify manipulating it, because all of a sudden, yeah. it suggests too much morally. If the system can be altered like that or if he can alter his own mm. actions and his it own would make it unfair role. yeah and it removes sense. what sense of like moral absolution he's able to give himself yeah, yeah. And that's what i mean about him being the he's like a textbook example of an inspector javert mm. like he was born into 
the life that he now attempts to control, he takes part in it, refuses corruption because of his moral center, as skewed as it may be, and he doesn't understand why Timberlake gave him more time. I think that he does, though. I think he he does, and he resents it. Yeah. Because Timberlake's making the choices that he couldn't. He was the one that decided that he was going to participate and collaborate, you know? Mm. And Timberlake's the one who, you know, gets a chance but refuses to pull the ladder up behind him like Killian Murphy's character did. And I think that that's what bothers the Killian Murphy character. That's one of the reasons why I think he keeps pursuing them so steadfastly is because and if he can't take Timberlake down, if Timberlake can actually make a difference, well, then my God. He proves that he's wasted his time. Yeah, exactly. And God, I wish we focused on him as our lead. That would have been such a very interesting movie. Well, let's talk a bit about where our focus does end up for so much of the movie, which is not only Will, but this um, this character, Sylvia, uh, the, the debutante, essentially, who starts out as hostage, but becomes collaborator, becomes the Bonnie to Will's Clyde. Um, and uh, She's got terrible trigger discipline. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. She's terrible that. trigger discipline, but fantastic aim. She seems to switch when the when the switch in the movie happens and it becomes an action movie. She switches mm. from being this, you know, stand-in for, for lack of a better term, I'll use a term I hate for woke um, children of of wealth people. You know, the people who yeah. are a bit guilty about the wealth that they have. The um, mo- most of the cast of bodies, bodies, bodies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, they pretend that that's what they're like, but. Yeah. Um, not how they actually, but like the the people who the millionaires who donate to the Bernie Sanders campaign, for instance. Yeah. But um, they, they have the philosophy, but aren't putting their yeah. money where their mouth. And is. they don't necessarily have the understanding to back it up. They can see intellectually, oh, this is a bad system, and even though I've benefited mm. from the system, it's not good. But like, there's a level of you know naivete that comes along with that. There's the distance. Um, but then in the Next thing that that when the switch happens, she becomes a studio note. <laughs> essentially, yeah. she becomes a note from the studio. There's got to be a love interest. We've got to have yeah. a few like you know flirty scenes. She becomes a sex kid, you know. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the switch comes from you know talking about the the you know moralities of you know the system's bad for everyone. Da 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 da. And having that to her playing strip poker in a hotel room. I mean. The switch happens, and it, it the switch never flips back the other way. She becomes the she becomes a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, and and it doesn't help that in that back half, it just drags, man. I don't it, have as much of a problem with that second half as you guys do. I, I just think that there is stuff happening, right? But it's not exactly the stuff that we've come to be conditioned by the first half. We're getting a lot less examination of the world and more just. They're running from the time cops. Yeah. Robbing a couple of banks. Well, yeah, it becomes this very Robin Hood kind of setup. And, um, and and by dragging, I mean it's not using its time economically. I I didn't find that it dragged in the second half. Mm. I found that it got a lot dumber. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't yeah. say that it dragged. Uh, it well, is... I guess that might have been because I was 
less engaged. Yeah. Yeah. I I by, grew by less engaged off. when it stopped being just about, you know, the differences between these classes and discussing the real world implications of the topic. When it became more we're gonna rob a bunch of banks, when it became all of this intrigue and twisty and all of that stuff, it becomes well, less also, interesting because it's touching on less of the interesting well, it philosophical also, stuff. It also doesn't follow that um, that switch through to its logical conclusion. Mm. If you're going to do this logical conclusion of becoming these um, these icons for the poor, then you got to work up to a like a lame is kind of <laughs> ending, right? We need yeah. to have a, a march on New Greenwich. That's how this. That's how how this story dramatically continues. Like, everyone walks up there by the end, but it's not a revolutionary action. Is because. Eh, screw it, why not? Yeah. But that, <laughs> and it should have been a revolutionary action. Yeah. They don't have the money for it to be a revolutionary action. They don't have yeah. the budget to make it that this movie. Um Yeah. It, I, I guess also one also, of my issues like, is quick, just those quickly, heists are very easy to pull yeah. off. But just quickly I'm surprised also nobody did it before. <laughs> but also, like, I this comes back to the collision between art and commerce. I don't believe I don't believe the 20th Century Fox signs off on a movie which implies that there should be you know a revolution <laughs> yeah. against the capitalism. They're not co-signing Eat the Rich. Pardon? They're not co-signing Eat the Rich. No. So that's fair. Like I, I do think an interesting thing they could do with the concept of the time thing is I would I would love like another story set in this world with the same. Technology, same sort of concept. A timekeeper is investigating a serial killer who is killing people by draining their time, functioning as a vampire, mm. almost. And, and you then can they use that to it's discuss one of the rich people doing it. Yeah, you can discuss all of the different uh, socioeconomic functions of the vampire as part of it. That could be a very interesting horror tinted, uh, in time sort of spin off. And Fuck it, have it set is, in London or something. Like we haven't spoken, we've spoken about the plot, but we've spoken more about the ideas. Yeah. Well, the plot is the, the ideas. That's the thing. Yeah. Um. Like the whole, it all is a big idea. Like that's the whole movie. The whole point mm. of the movie is this idea of what a timeless money. And yeah. Uh, to the problem that it that it the problems that it has as a narrative are all born out of the fact that they haven't been able to match that premise to a hugely intriguing plot. They've taken yeah. a bunch of other plots. I mean, we've already mentioned multiple times, the Bonnie and Clyde angle, the Robin Hood angle, even like the first half is Gattaca. But <laughs> they they haven't they've got this premise that they've they haven't followed it through to a, a, a story that matches it. Yeah. Yeah. Um I, and I think that and I think that it that does nothing. That there's nothing more that backs that in that illustrates that more than the fact that the movie just sort of ends with a shrug. Um, yeah. <laughs> that we've explored this this uh, horrific system, this horrific dystopia, but the movie at the end seems to suggest like, is anything going to change? I don't know. Mm, maybe they're just going to drive away now. They've got enough time to survive that one car chase, but nothing else is resolved. And now, like the time Illuminati from all over the world that Vincent Carthizer is is skyping with from his <laughs> from his boardroom, um, and I guess they're going to rob a couple more banks. Yeah, 
And obviously, I know that that's probably there's probably something in the back of people's minds when they're making a movie that costs as much as this movie costs. Well, maybe mm. we can do this again. Maybe we can come back and do in time two, in time three, mm. in time four. But in time two, Revenge of Time mm. wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth the time spent making it in time in the hood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In time, the hood. In time, in space. Like, but too time, too prejudice. But it's a... Uh, <laughs> too time, too late. But I th- I, I'm not even sure what we're doing now. We're just saying words. But um, the... All that we say on this podcast are words, Lawson. Oh, well, Yeah, but yes. usually they're much more thought through that's how than the, that. That's how language works. John, we were starting the podcast with cogent sentences, but you just said too time too late so that shows a sign of degradation well here. i was I, I tried to say two time too furious i went two time too prejudice prejudice pride in the prejudice you, got wrapped you mixed up in pride and prejudice there um although that would be a pretty interesting like crossover that they're at the debutante ball and it's like oh i'm sorry mr darcy but it looks like i have to, like i have to top up my clock Oh, I would Mr. love... Mr. Darcy, your time would, isn't good here. I would love to see Vin Diesel in a Regency-era comedy of oh, madness. 100%. <laughs> oh, 100%. Oh, dude, yes. we would go to the cinema. Yes. We'd wear suits like those fucking Gentle Minions kids. <laughs> like, that is... Yeah. That is... See, a lot of people are like, oh, cinema's for these, these highfalutin ideals and philosophies and theories and a way to explore the way that people react to things in a safe space. But no, I want to see an actor who has no business in a Regency-era romantic <laughs> comedy in a, a Regency-era romantic comedy. Like, I, Vin Diesel I want to see wearing something... a nice foppish suit and a powdered wig? Vin Are Diesel, you shitting me? Vin Diesel Amazing. in Northanger Abbey. <laughs> like... Exactly. It's like... Sir, what what are you doing here? You haven't been allowed into this section of the manor. I'm here for family. I would love to see something that I've never seen before. Mm. You know, that's that's that's. The I key mean, to we it. did kind of have a sneak peek of it with Keanu Reeves in uh, Dracula. Proverbs and it's very memeable. Mm. Um, oh, can you imagine Vin Diesel as Jonathan Harker in that movie? Incredible. Just He's as killing. A- Dracula because of family. Just as a a final note on In Time, I do think it's a little interesting that they never made a sequel to it because mm. it made a lot mm. of money. Um, mm. It cost forty million. It made one hundred and seventy four million. Like it was a hit. Um, and you know, I could see how uh, <laughs> I could see how you could continue this further. You know, mm. like that. It's that revolutionary thing. If that's the angle you're going with. Mm. But I, I think that there was probably an understanding of the fact that this was a premise that was built on a fairly rickety set of scaffolding. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a Mayfly film. It's not one that will really last under a lot of scrutiny. It's got borrowed time as it is in terms of its sort of shakiness of the world and plot. It's the idea of the dark multiverse of some worlds were never meant to go beyond just the one story and yeah. that's fine and to be fair you know we've talked about all of these you know plot holes and things in the world building that exists in every science fiction or fantasy story oh, for sure yeah, I mean, lord of the rings of why didn't the eagles just fly them over 
Like, well, the there best... are actual there, yeah. there are actual law reasons. Yeah, I know, I know, and the the law reasons seem to suggest well, the eagles can't be commanded by anyone, and so your answer to that literally is just saying, oh, the eagles are assholes who don't want to help anyone save the world. Well, no, they don't the eagles, want to fly next eagle... to a volcano. Lawson. Okay, like so, then why the do they have to king walk? Didn't want to rock up to Mordor while the Freaking Nazgul are popping around on uh-huh, their dragon, uh-huh, sacrificing uh-huh. his and, people. Yeah, okay, so why do they have to walk the other three quarters of the way there? Why couldn't the eagles, like, skip Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers and drop them at the start of Return of the King? I mean, they are assholes at that point. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't have our nasty little guy, Gollum. He would just be off back in Venus Mogul or some shit. But like, would solve a you, lot of problems. You see what I mean, like? Yeah, yes. I see what you mean. Concessions have to be made for a story to exist. It's like those videos of people doing old horror movies, but everyone's got cell phones. And it's like, oh, who's killing people? Oh, Jason Voorhees. We've all got cell reception. Well, he's going up on he's going up on TikTok. They got. Got to get the council mob to go cancel Jason Voorhees. Uh, see, that'd us. be what that that's how you resurrect Friday the Thirteenth. Is that it's been years, no one remembers the murders at Camp Crystal Lake anymore. But all of a sudden, a, a TikTok of <laughs> Jason Voorhees Jason goes viral. People, you know, it's like the um, like that photo of Bigfoot. <laughs> it, he becomes like a new social media darling. Yeah. Oh, just so, hiding out yeah. of the woods. No, it's like a TikTok challenge. They're all trying that. to find Jason in the woods. <laughs> like, and it's just a bunch about- of young people testing fate in the most dangerous way possible. You're better a lot off of them could be like, doing MDMA I- in a sketchy nightclub than going to Cramp Crystal Lake and being honestly, I do like honestly, the idea that a lot of time. them are just like, I just love his vibe. <laughs> the hockey mask is very in right now. The vibe. The vibes. The aesthetic. Everything about it is killer. Now now you're making me think of Jason dropping a slut drop. <laughs> yes! J- Jason on Jason on Drag Race. Yes. Uh, anyway. He'd be the third most brutal person there. Yeah. Um, but uh seems like we've reached an end of our conversation about in time. So why don't we now uh, move on to recasting the movie with the Muppets version of in time what does the muppets in time look like so i actually did ask chat gpt this time again i feel like what let us not let us not waste our time i won't tell you i will tell you after yeah please i just don't want to waste the time on the episode for that well harley we are doing a bespoke segment on who (laughs) we would recast out of the muppets in a muppet parody version of in time and all of a sudden you just you want to make sure that <laughs> that the stuff we spend our time on in this podcast is of the, the highest of intellect <laughs> that we really respect our listeners i'm time. just saying i'd rather do it myself yes yes let's go through our, our our ideas first and then we'll see what the robot has to say sam the eagle is the killian murphy character yeah yeah uh Kermit suffers no falls. Yeah, he seems like a fed. You got to keep Kermit as um as the Justin yep. Timberlake character. Uh honestly, Janice prob- Janice probably fits as Seyfried. Yeah, yeah, but who do we keep as a human in this? Carthizer. There's always a Carthizer. Like, he's literally the only human. <laughs> he he is Muppet esque here. Mm. So he does have sort of. If you went to Jim Henson, you were like, okay. Rich yuppie Muppet, 
What would he that, look like? That's the look. He would show you a picture of a felt car thigh oh, no, no, no. from this movie. Scooter as the car thighs character. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. That, that gives a lot of sort of metatextual interest into the car thighs uh, Salas it's scenes a very, because it's a we very know that Scooter, Scooter respects Kermit, but not enough to give him too much rope. <laughs> mm. So, like... Well, Scooter's a very good stage manager, John. You can't yeah. let the talent get away with everything. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, you obviously need uh, Statler and Waldorf there, but aged down versions. Like 25-year-old yeah, Statler yeah, and Waldorf. Yeah, the aged down Statler and Waldorf who <laughs> no, go to plays okay. every day in a big big figures in, in the East Village. Right. The only human you keep is Alice Pettifer as the, the guy trying to steal the, the crime guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so he's doing that. Even uh, even his even his dudes who are mean mugging behind him, they're actually, muppets actually, too. Actually, you know what? No, I'm changing my mind. Pettifer can Pettifer can be a, a muppet, but Boma's the one that you keep as a human. But I do think there's a lot that could be interesting about keeping Timberlake as human and my Boma's character as Kermit. I think um, Fozzie. You don't want to waste Kermit though. You don't want to waste Kermit. Yeah. Fozzie yeah. as the uh, the alcoholic Galecki. friend who drinks himself to death. Galecki, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. He seems like the kind who would waste 10 years on alcohol. Yeah, Fozzie, definitely an alcoholic. Yeah. Fozzie, Fozzie never got paid for his early stand-up stuff because he would always <laughs> drink himself silly after his set. Yeah. He, he, he thought the drinks were on the house, but they definitely they were not. Well, so now- ChatGPT's ideas... No, I just want to say, ChatGPT has agreed with us for all of them, except Amanda it's agreed, Reed Sorry, it's Piggy. agreed with us for all of them, is that? It's, it's agreed with us for most of them. It has said uh, Timberlake as is Kermit. Uh, Sam the Eagle is Killy Murphy's character. But it has said Pepe the King Prawn for Vincent Carthizer. Uh, not slimy enough. Uh, I could see Pepe the King Prawn as the Alex Pettifer character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it also said Miss Piggy for Sylvia because who else? You know the lack of female Muppets, like we have said repeatedly. I do think yeah. that Janice would be a good, better, better. Janice Sylvia. is a better because Janice is yeah. like, oh, the system hurts everyone, man. <laughs> like exactly. You could, you could, like if you told yeah. me that Janice was, you know, Janice fits in that sort of Patty Hearst version of, mm. uh, of the character. Definitely. Oh yeah, yeah. Janice is definitely modelled after members of the Manson family. <laughs> All right. Like, she, she's got a sort of stoned out of her mind, is just following people around for the hell of it kind of deal. But you're not wrong. I'm not wrong. See, if we've reached the point where we're now com- comparing members of uh, of the Muppets to members of the Manson family, then it must mean that we've reached the end of the podcast. Um so why don't we now move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course who we would recast on this podcast patron who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here uh, I think I'm gonna do a tie between Timberlake and Seyfried. Because uh you know, I like these this movie's ideas. I don't think they're well enough executed for me to give it to Nichols. But Timberlake and Seyfried keep it running. They are very appealing yeah. lead characters. They have a lot of chemistry with each other. They hold the screen well. They do everything that's asked of them. 
And I can see a version of this movie that's made with a little more gutsiness than what it has that takes all of that goodwill that they've built up and really does something interesting with it. Uh, And I, I, I think that they're the only people in the thing that I can't find, that I don't have to make it a backhanded compliment to. I don't have to couch my compliment in something else, you know? Like, Killian Murphy's great, but he's too old, you know? Um, Andrew Nichols' ideas are great, but his execution isn't great. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to go with, with Seyfried and Timberlake. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going with the uh, the dinner party that Timberlake gets busted at. I think that's one of the most intriguing stretches of the movie because it is this infiltration. We've seen so much of how the world works in the ghettos, but now we're seeing how the other half live. We're seeing the complete detachment from the actual real world, the actual suffering of people from the elite and the almost antiseptic, say love nature with which they allow themselves to approach these topics where the blame almost recurs on the poor people, mm. you know? Um, and it is the allegory of this film at perhaps its most trenchant. So I'm going to go with that. In terms of my favourite, uh, in terms of who I would re- recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow, I'm going with Philippe Weiss. I'm you know, getting a 25-year-old Lithgow as Philippe Weiss. Yep. I think that he could fulfill that smarminess perfectly, but also really capture the weakness of the man ultimately, that this yeah. is mm. ultimately a man who, you know, only is in the position he is in because the system allows him to be. If he really had to succeed on his own merit, he's indecisive. He is, you know, easily, easily ordered around. He's not the tycoon he fancies himself to be. And I think that Lithgow could catch the falseness of yeah. that uh, that facade quite well. Uh, so for me, I'm going to have to say my MVP is someone we haven't spoken about on this episode thus far. The cinematographer of this movie, Roger Deakins. Uh, Roger Deakins is among my favorite cinematographers, and he is working here. The movie looks great. It's shot really, really well. First time uh, he did so on digital cameras, I think. Uh, maybe? I don't know that kind of detail. But I love Deacon's use of colour. A lot of the nighttime shots are gorgeous. Uh, and I just really like watching the man's work. It's always a very pleasant exercise. I can't give it to Nichols because the execution of the ideas is pretty sloppy at times. Uh, and, I don't know, Seyfried is unimpressive to me this time around. It doesn't feel like her, you know? Um, and while I like Tim Blake, I don't know. He's doing okay, but it's not his best work either. I do think my MVB has to go to Roger Deakins. My favorite scene or sequence has to go to the conversational scenes between Matt Boma and Tim Blake at the beginning of the movie. It slows down. It is just a conversation between these two people. One of them who understands the nature of time pretty well and someone else who is beginning to realize it. And it's slow, it's well shot, it is almost relaxing, in a way, and it is the beginning of the discussion of the ideas. Uh, Who I would recast with John Lithgow 
it'll have to be the the Carthizer roll, roll, the the Weiss roll. Uh, you get a uh, twenty-five to thirty-year-old John Lithgow. You plop him into the role. Not only can he do the smarmy rich guy part of it, he can also portray the essential weakness of Weiss, the the poverty of him, the fact that he has hoarded centuries, like dozens of centuries, away from people just to make himself feel big. The fact that he believes that the world is working well because of survival of the fittest, when it's the rich who don't understand what it is to fight. And yeah, I think Lithgow can play those parts really, really well. Yeah, for my MVP, I think I have to give it to probably Roger Deakins. I love the way that this movie is shot. It's economical, it's pretty very often, and it elevates what could have been a kind of messy film. It keeps a level of style here. It's not terribly much, it's far from the best thing he's ever shot, but it's still good work from a cinematographer I greatly admire. For my favorite scene or sequence, it's when Olivia Wilde has been not allowed to go on the bus, so she's running to Will, and Will's running to her, and just just misses. It's a <coughs> microcosm of what this movie really is, of losing time, losing money, losing hope, losing your health, and losing your ability to provide. And if the movie had just ended there... That is a good little short film. Everything after that is just a little bit extra. And for who I would get John Lithgow as, again, he kind of has to be 25-year-old him. So I would get him as Carthizer's character, Philippe. Because, again, like you guys have said, he can capture that essence of the character, the smarminess, the fact that he's looking down on everyone around him, even people as rich as he is. He is a sniveling little gremlin who doesn't really care about others, and folds at the first sign of physical harm being done to his person. So I think Lithgow can capture that essence of the character. He's played shitbags like that before, and he'll continue to do so, hopefully, for far off into the future. But it's the kind of character that he can do quite well, but also capturing what's inside the man, too. So now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro in time podcast or not, Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Uh, I'm saying no. I mean, I like this movie. I clearly like this movie better than the two of you do, but it is messy. It is uh, bitten off more than it can chew, and it does waste some of the opportunities that it has. I, I enjoy it a lot. I find it very entertaining, and I find the the world that it has created to be very compelling and interesting and i'd be interested in like a tv show or something set in this world that could really like explore all of the nooks and crannies of it uh handmaid's tale kind of story almost mm. but uh as it is no i've got i've got to say no uh for me i think it's a very very interesting concept i even had to look up whether or not it was based on a philip k a dick short story because i figured with a concept of that interesting Surely, one of those older writers did something with it. Like, Harlan Ellison has something similar, uh, but not yeah, close but not enough. not close to, enough. You know. And even he recognized that after seeing the movie. He was like, oh, this lawsuit has nothing to do with me, so I'm going to yeah step back from 
that one. Uh, but while the idea is interesting, that can't carry it to the finish line. Uh, the first half, I really, really like. I think all of the actors are doing a really good job. I love the way it's shot. But it kind of loses its intent at the halfway mark and starts, I think, wasting time. Um, if it was shorter, a bit tighter, I think we could have had something really, really strong in our hands. But it kind of indulges when it doesn't need to. And it goes to Hollywood, I think. It could have been a much weirder project like Gattaca, I think. Um, so it it's not an anti for me. I still had a good time watching it, but it's a no for me. It's an ambivalent for me. Yeah, it doesn't cross the line for me. Its ideas are fantastic. Its atmosphere is really well done. The first half of the movie is very strong and building and building to something quite interesting, more along the lines of Gattaca, I hope. But after the middle of the movie and onward to the end, it takes only a few moments to really get back to talking about the issues. Everything else is simply to serve, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if they did a heist? Or, and even then, they don't focus enough time on the actual doing of the heists. There aren't enough wrinkles in there to make it interesting. So, like, I, like Harley said, they waste too much time for me to be pro, but I'm far from anti because it's a good cast, they do a good job, and the ideas are there. So, there you have it. We are not a pro in time podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find us at an exit through the KG County Given John and myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about In Time? Uh, what is a short story that you can conceive of to fit within that world, within that conceit of time being money? And you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind, on certain podcast apps, they do comments on the whole of the podcast, and others do it on individual episodes. If you are commenting on a podcast app that has the comments on the whole, let us know which uh, episode you are referring to, just for our own... Just let us know which episode you're referring to, so we know what you're talking about. Uh, but please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. Time is something that machines have quite a great deal of. A lot of machine bodies survive a lot longer than human flesh does. Of course, human bodies have had extended lifespans as of late, but machines will outlive the vast majority of us. And not that they'll live forever. They can't. They are still machines. They have mechanical minds that degrade and break over time. So immortality is still sought after by people to this day. So that struggle continues both on man and machines part. The march of time, it affects us all. Be us yep. rots robots, and decays cyborg, everything. or human. Yeah, rots and decays everything, man. So, Lawson, on that cheery note, what have we got cooking for next week? Well, next week we will be doing a very different type of movie. A uh, more serious, awardsy sort of fare. Uh, okay. It is a movie that uh, I am very much looking forward to talking to you both about. I suspect you haven't seen it. Um, it is the George Clooney starring The Descendants. Oh, okay. If you would like to watch along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. 
Again, because this is a Disney-owned movie, they do not allow you to rent their things anymore. So you can also find it available for purchase only on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon, Telstra, and YouTube stores. Yep, so join us next week for when we discuss The Descendants. Till then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Wilson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be sure. Would you ride?